Uh, we're going to be back in Galatians 6. We have come as far as verse 7, where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So Paul introduced this idea of sharing in verse 6, where he said, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And so he carries on with sharing here in a more general sense, while it still applies to verse 6. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He uses the analogy of a person planting a crop. You will never reap soybeans if you plant wheat. If you plant an apple tree, don't look for avocados. Yet many either ignore or are ignorant of this principle when it comes to spiritual things. The Bible illustration is figs and grapes. You don't get the fruit of the vine from a fig tree and you don't get figs from a, a, a vine. But the seed doesn't matter. There are only two crops in mind here. It's either the flesh or the spirit. And all the seed falls into one of these two categories. In verse 8, he says, He who sows to his flesh will, re- will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. The same principle of sowing and reaping is true of spiritual things. If we sow to the flesh, practicing those things that are of the flesh, and we read of the works of the flesh in chapter 5, we will reap a fleshly crop that ultimately results in corruption. We sow to the bad, we will on the balance reap bad things. And it may not even be primarily in this life if we apply this to people in general. This is how people are deceived and how God is mocked. If a believer sows to the flesh, he will also reap of the flesh. But not the same as the unbeliever. God will deal with the believer according to discipline or chastisement as in Hebrews 12. If we sow good things, things of the Spirit of God, we will reap everlasting good things, things pertaining to life, real life. Of course, no one can sow to the Spirit unless they have the Holy Spirit, unless they have believed on Jesus, unless they are born again. In Romans 8, verses 8 through 10, we're told, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You have to have the Spirit to sow to the Spirit. And so no matter how much you think you might be sowing spiritual things, if you don't have the Spirit, you're sowing to the flesh. Here, notice again, we've pointed out before, but this If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, he is also the Spirit of Christ. That's one Spirit. So the unsaved person may do some good things according to the world, but they cannot sow to the Spirit. A story is told about a visitor in a penitentiary who passed by a cell where a man was patching his prison garb with a needle and thread. The visitor, wanting to begin a conversation with the prisoner, said, What are you doing, sowing? And the prisoner looked up and replied, No, reaping. The principle stated here, sowing and reaping, is immutable, invariable, unalterable, and it cannot be revoked. To deny this is to mock God. Paul warns against deception regarding sowing and reaping. God is not 
mocked. To deny this reality is to make a mockery of God and to deceive yourself. To mock is to turn up the nose or sneer at or to deride. This is the only use of this word in the New Testament. The major word used for mock and mocking is used at the trial of Jesus, where the soldiers mocked him, and it means basically to trifle with. This second word is also translated scoff or related, scoffers, as in the last days, scoffers shall come. So scoffers may mock and mockers may scoff. God will not be mocked or the subject of scoffing, that is, in the end. So you need to get your licks in now and sow as much as you want. Later, it will be reaping time. Come to Jesus and reap in the Spirit before the door closes. God is mocked by saying that he does not reward the righteous for the good they have done and that he does not punish the wicked for their works. In other words, people do not reap what they sow. This is mocking God to say this. Sometimes the wicked do prosper and the righteous are ill-treated. And many stumble at this and ascribe evil motives to God or say that he's not able, perhaps that he does not exist. Why does he allow such things? But this is only a temporary situation. The day of judgment is yet to come. He has spoken plainly about this day and shown himself to truly be the one and only God and Savior by many words and actions. You know, our generation has more confirmation of God's word through fulfilled prophecy than any other generation in the history of the world. And daily we see last day's things, prophecies being fulfilled before our eyes, even in our current predicament as a nation. But justice will not be rendered until the final judgment. God is good and he does good, Psalm 119.68. He's long-suffering and merciful, and so he does not judge immediately. It is his goodness that is meant to lead men to repentance, as Romans 2.4 says. But he will not be mocked. When believers receive justice and thereby eternal life, it will not be unjust of God. We desire mercy in relation to our sins and not justice, which mercy and grace we receive by believing in Jesus. But God is just, and we receive real justice in God's pardoning of our slate because he applies the judgment of our sins borne by his son as payment on our account. The forgiveness of sinners does not mock God, and he is not unjust in rewarding them with eternal life. Romans 3.26 says that he may be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus forgives, but we have to come to him. But men do mock God when they deny his righteousness or his judgment, when they say that he does not reward the righteous or punish the wicked. They deny his character and his goodness or his existence. In Psalms 50, there are several passages here that illustrate this. Psalms 50, starting in verse 16, God says to the wicked, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Not even You don't even have the right to speak my words to the wicked, he says. Seeing you hate instruction and you cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him 
and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And he says, these things you've done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. Because God didn't judge immediately, they were thinking, oh, well, I'm right here in the same place with God. He says, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Similarly, in Psalm 94, verses 3 through 12, the psalmist asked, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. We see that taking place all around the world. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. It's like there's not going to be any consequences for what we're doing. He says, understand you. He says, God of Jacob doesn't understand. He says, understand you, senseless among the people, and you, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? Do you think God is deaf and blind? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile or empty. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. No, you can only be taught if you're teachable. And then in Isaiah 40, I ran across this as I was studying for Thursday night because we're getting close to these chapters in Isaiah. Here's what they say uh, of the Lord. He says, why do you say, this is verse 27. I don't know if I said that. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. They were saying, well, God's, God's unjust. He's not listening to my just claim. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So those who trust in the Lord are going to be doing well. But those who question him, saying, my just claim is passed over by God. This is a mockery of God. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 73, we're not going to look at this morning, but you'll find this whole psalm is about uh, his stumbling because he sees the wicked prospering. And he's thinking and and he's thinking that, you know, this is all unjust. And then he comes to a point, he says, Wow, if I had spoken thusly, you know, I would have been committing evil, committing sin. And he says, it was when I went to the house of the Lord that I saw their end. 
and then I understood the Lord is long-suffering even toward the wicked, toward the evil, so that they might turn, so that they might be saved. And so thus men mock God. There are many professing Christians who mock God in some things that they say. Perhaps they don't realize it. Some of the things we say in anger or frustration toward or about God can be quite horrible. The devil will definitely tempt men to mock God and then magnify their guilt for doing so. The enemy tempts men to sin and then uses their failure against them. He's without honor. A person I used to know, or a new person I knew used to say, you reap what you sow unless you repent. God is merciful, but you will likely still suffer some temporal consequences of what you sow even if you repent. We, we think of King David in the aftermath of Bathsheba and Uriah, or Abraham with Hagar and Ishmael. But this is up to the Lord. Maybe you won't reap to the degree that you've sown, or maybe you won't reap at all depending on what he desires. Some people sow wild oats and then pray for a crop failure. That's probably a futile prayer. It's not a bad thing to pray, but don't count on it. Especially if you're using it as a strategy. Well, here I am again, more wild oats. But God does say this in Joel 2.25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. So when the Lord uh, sends something to bring correction to you and you respond, he may very well Uh, speak as he does to the nation of Israel here because he had sent these locusts as judgment. And when they repented, he says, I'll restore to you all the years that have been eaten. And certainly uh, when we pass from this life, complete restoration. But today our nation is in serious trouble with God because we are a mocker of God. Our national leaders, not all, but most, most are mockers of God through their words, actions, and policies. They find it most convenient to use the word God when they think it will help forward their political agenda. But out of the other side of their mouth, they tell you that your faith is illegitimate in the public square. Stay in your church if we allow you to gather. And keep your thoughts of what is morally correct to yourself. Don't try to impose your beliefs on everyone else. And I think they should add, that's our job, because they have no shame in doing so. Why are we having so many problems as a nation? Because we mock God. The 117th Congress opened with a prayer, as they always have, and you probably, many of you are familiar with this prayer. Part of this prayer was, we ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. And then it concluded, Amen and a woman. Most of the attention has been given to the last phrase, Amen and a woman. And the minister who prayed this prayer described it as a light-hearted pun that has been misconstrued when it created a huge controversy because he was he was thinking there are many new women in Congress, and so this is you know this is a light-hearted pun, and. Although it was inappropriate, to say the least, I'll cut him some slack on that. I say ill-advised or stupid things on a daily basis. I'm glad you don't get to hear it. 
all the time. A much more serious issue is addressing the addressing of the prayer to the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names by many different faiths. The true God is indeed known by many different names, but these are all in Scripture. Some of these are based on the attributes of deity. But to equate the biblical God with the idols and false gods of men, with Brahma or Allah or other false deities, is making a mockery of God. He's not of the character of any of these false gods. I don't know how many in Congress said amen to this prayer, but one is too many. In other recent congressional action from a site favorable to the action, uh, and I'm going to quote extensively here, and I'll probably throw in some a few comments. The newly reelected House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Rules Committee Chairman James P. McGovern introduced a new code of conduct ahead of the 117th Congress that includes sweeping reforms and promotes diversity and inclusivity. There is inclusivity of everything but the truth. Democrats have crafted, this is uh, continuing quote, Democrats have crafted a package of unprecedented, bold reforms which will make the House more accountable, transparent, and effective in our work to meet the needs of the American people. Uh, they got so far from that. These future-focused proposals reflect our priorities as a caucus and as a country, including, here, here's the proposals, crushing the coronavirus, addressing economic disparity, combating the climate crisis, advancing inclusion, and promoting integrity in government, said Pelosi, who was reelected this past Sunday in a statement. I mean, most of these things, they have no congressional or constitutional authority for you know they're not things that our federal government is to be doing and involved in but the last one promoting integrity in government that's really a laugh i mean uh, why not just have integrity in government instead of trying to promote it <laughs> now going on with it here it says in addition to permanently establishing an, an office of diversity and inclusion and other diversity measures, the proposed package would honor all gender identities by changing pronouns and familial relationships in the House rules to be gender neutral. Previously, Congress operated under a binary rule that words importing one gender include the other as well. And that's normal human language. We, it's used in scripture all the time. But they're doing away with that. It says in this record, with a record number of LGBTQ plus lawmakers joining the new Congress, and I always get mixed up on the letters, I had to read them. The latest rules acknowledge a spectrum of gender identities as well as same-sex relationships. Still, there are no non-binary representatives in either the House or the Senate, and the nation's first openly non-binary binary lawmaker was elected just last year. Non-binary. That means you're neither one or the other. There are only two, so what does, where does that leave you? Well, it goes on and finishes saying several anti-LGBTQ plus lawmake, policy lawmakers decried the change, including Representative Kevin McCarthy. Thank you, Kevin who supported the Defense of Marriage Act banning same-sex marriage. So these people are not 
pro-traditional marriage or pro-men and women. They're anti-LGBTQ+. you got to have the plus in there. So from a, a different side, the changes that are being proposed include this. Within the proposals are the creation of the Select Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth, which would require Congress to honor all gender identities by changing pronouns and familial relationships in the House rules to be gender neutral. In Clause 8C3 of Rule 23, gendered terms, here are the things they're doing away with, gendered terms such as father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, stepfather, stepmother, stepson, stepdaughter, stepbrother, stepsister, half-brother, half-sister, grandson or granddaughter will be removed. So you're not supposed to use these. Now, currently, there's no uh, penalty involved if somebody would use one of these, but I'm sure that will be coming down the road. And interestingly, after this was proposed, I don't even, I don't know if it's been passed, put in place exactly yet, but uh, when Speaker Pelosi was uh, talking about another issue. She was referring to herself as a grandmother and a mother and, and these things. Now, and they're, they're going to replace these terms, though, so it's not, you know, it's not a bad thing, right, because they're replacing them with parent, child, sibling, parent's sibling, first cousin, sibling's child, spouse, parent-in-law, child-in-law, sibling-in-law. Step-parent, step-child, step-sibling, half-sibling, or grandchild are going to be used instead. So I can see the new Bible versions coming out, you know, saying uh, Jesus will be saying a, a person's enemies will be uh, his parent-in-law. A parent-in-law will be against a child-in-law, and a child-in-law will be against a parent-in-law. Uh, Franklin Graham commented on this gender neutral, these gender neutral house rules, and he said it's shaking a fist in the Creator's face. It is. It's mocking God. And I agree. It won't be pleasant when God shakes His fist back, and that will come. You know, He's long suffering. He's merciful, but the day will come. In related news, I saw this just uh, last evening as I was finalizing my notes. A survey of the 117th Congress reported that 88% of the members of Congress are Christians. They asked them for their religious affiliation, and 88% said that they are Christians. Now, you have to excuse me if I ask what kind of Christianity this is. I don't recognize it from reading God's Word. So God is allowing mockers to rule over us, speaking of America, and this is just just recompense for our neglect of God and his righteousness, neglect of his word of truth, which we have been blessed with in abundance. I don't know any nation in the world that has more of the word of God available in abundance than this place in which we live. And we're still responsible to pray for these leaders so that we might live in peace, according to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. We must honor their office and authority unless it goes directly against God's commands. This remains God's will for us, and we must be faithful in doing this. It's required of us to be praying for these folks. But this mocking mindset affects 
all of us in the U.S. There's a uh, song by Mark Hurd. It's actually a group. He was a one-man band group called Ideolus. It's on that album. But it's called Watching the Ship Go Down. It talks about the problems, you know, and the chorus goes, Watching the ship go down. Watching the ship go down. Watching the ship go down. Carrying you and carrying me. And that's the ship that we're on right now. It's the proverbial Titanic. God will protect his people, but we are subject to the same external conditions as unbelievers. Our declaration of independence speaks of God giving inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God never promises us those in this life. His promise to us is found in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Where he says, let your conduct be without covetousness, but be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We don't need to be afraid of what's going on or afraid of the future. All we have to do is cling to the Lord. He's promised to be with us. Whatever comes, whatever we go through. And in the end, we have eternal life with him. C.H. Spurgeon said, to live to serve men is one thing, to live to bless them is another, and this we will do, God helping us, making sacrifices for their good. But to fear men, to ask their leave to think, to ask their instructions as to what we shall speak and how we shall say it, that is a baseness we cannot brook. By the grace of God, we have not so degraded ourselves and never shall. Now, of course, God uses and will use all these circumstances circumstances as well to do his work in us. Let's not lose sight of God and his purposes in and through us. These are not random or meaningless developments. Don't allow mockers to steal your joy and continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, which is the hope of all mankind. In God is our hope, and in him alone we trust. We conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven, because that will be our permanent home. Sowing to the flesh or the spirit includes monetarily and behaviorally or spiritually. Monetarily is the lesser of the two, but mammon is the most popular God substitute. It controls the hearts of many men. As Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. He desires our heart because it is the depository of our treasure. Does our treasure consist of temporal or eternal things? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We can't take anything with us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we're, uh, we're told the proper way to give. And uh, Paul's writing to them about this collection he's going to be taking up for the church in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And then he says, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. 
They were exemplary in their giving because they gave not only of what they had, but they gave themselves first. So we can share only our stuff or we can share ourselves and our stuff. And we will we will reap in proportion to our sowing. In chapter 9 of that same book, 2 Corinthians, verses 6 through 11, Paul says, This I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you're familiar with the fact that cheerful is the word from which we get hilarity or hilarious. So, you know, a cheerful giver. He says, don't give, you know, because you feel like you have to or because you're trying to impress somebody or grudgingly like, well, I don't really want to do this. Um, God doesn't need your money. He needs your heart, but he doesn't need your money. He's got plenty of those cattles on the hills. In verse 8, he says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. And for it is as it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, everything comes from him, supply and multiply the seed you have sown. And increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. In verse 9 of uh, chapter 6 of Galatians, then he says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. It's easy to become discouraged in doing good. It takes time between the sowing and the reaping. We will reap in due season if we do not lose heart or give up. James speaks of the patience of the farmer. James 5, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And how much more is it at hand? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 and 36 says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We may grow weary because many are unappreciative. Others see the good we're doing as the opposite of good. But we are not doing good for the approval of men. But for God, he is the one we serve, and it is to him that we look for the reward. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then further on down in verse 22, he says, Bondservants. Now, these were, this is the word for slaves. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Uh, Peter says, even to the bad masters, you're to do this. And then he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Don't look for reaping from 
people look for your weeping to come from the Lord God. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Reaping and sowing, the way it works. First Corinthians fifteen fifty seven fifty eight. Paul says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we don't want to become discouraged or give up. When we sow to the Spirit, the reaping will be certain. There are no crop failures in serving the Lord. But patience is needed for the harvest. In Psalms 122, 5 and 6, uh, speaking about this restoration of Israel to the land, he says, uh, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now the main crop we're to sow is the word of God. We know the parable of the sower. The sower goes out and scatters the seed and it lands on different kinds of soil. The growth of the seed is not our responsibility, nor do we have any capability for its growth. But some of it will yield 30, 60, or 100-fold guaranteed. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, we're told, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Reminds me of a story that I don't have in my notes here about a snail. And the snail lost his shell. And so his friend was asking him, well, how do you feel now? And he said, sluggish. <laughs> so you don't want to become sluggish, but you want to imitate those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I should briefly mention a perversion of the teaching on sowing and reaping, and that is what is known as seed faith. In this teaching, you sow your monetary seed with a particular ministry, and you're guaranteed to get a 30, 60, or 100-fold return in money or material things. This is not what sowing and reaping is all about. In fact, this is sowing to the flesh because it is a twisting of what God has said for personal gain. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are to do good to all. We have a special concern for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, but we are to do good even to those who oppose the truth. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, Jesus says, You've heard it said that you've, you've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Oh, come on, Lord. Be reasonable about it. <laughs> do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We're to be good to all, but especially to the household of faith. We're especially to have a concern for our fellow believers. We're one body in Christ, but many members, and we're to care for one another as our physical bodily members care for one another. 
in our day and age, we also have a tremendous opportunity to do good to our brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world. This doing good is another command that is very simple to obey. Just find some good to do and do it. There's no conflict between salvation through faith by grace and doing good works. In fact, there's a direct connection. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that famous passage says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So no works involved in being justified, saved through that faith. He says, For we are his workmanship. Once you uh, experience that salvation, this is poema is the Greek word. It's, it's a work that God is doing. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and we'll see the new creation is important. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's got good works for us to perform. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. There are 15 times, at least in the New King James Version, uh, where good works are spoken of. Uh, once by Jesus, where he says, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. James simply says works. But the examples he gives are not works of the law. They're good works. So these are not works for righteousness, but good works as a response to and as a result of righteousness. John Wesley said it this way, do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. And in verse 11, Paul says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. This is often related to Paul's eye condition that he mentioned earlier in this epistle to the Galatians. But the greater emphasis seems to be on the urgent message that he is conveying to them. Paul usually had a scribe to whom he dictated his letters. Then he would usually sign them personally. It may be that there was no scribe available and therefore Paul wrote this entire letter personally in, uh, due to the urgency of the message. But it could also refer to these closing words that follow. There came a time when false teachers began to send letters impersonating Paul. Uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2, he told them not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So Paul's signature became the mark of authenticity of his writings. In 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. And so this is how they could know that the letter was genuinely from Paul because it would have his own handwriting. But in what large letters indicates the importance of the message and can be likened to see how hard I'm pressing with my pen. Paul says, see or behold, pay attention. He's emphasizing that it is essential that they take heed to the message of this epistle. In verse 12, he says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. 
For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. The cross of Christ destroyed the religion of the law and provided for men to live in the Holy Spirit of God. It destroyed any ground for boasting on the part of man. My righteousness is not obtained by my own works, but is entirely the gift of another to me. How does Paul know that they do not keep the law? He says even those who are circumcised, they don't keep the law. How does he know they don't keep the law? Because no one keeps the law as it is required to be kept. Men must come to the cross, the work of Christ, if they are to have righteousness in life. Now, we can make a good showing in the flesh. God knows the heart. We may impress others, but we cannot please God by our works. Verse 14, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The work of the cross is spoken of several places in Galatians. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5.24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this is entirely the work of the Spirit. The flesh profits nothing. And then our current verse, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We've died with Christ upon the cross. The flesh has been crucified. Its passions and desires have been killed. And we experience this by faith, not by works. And the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. That only leaves Satan because uh, in his cross he's defeated the flesh and the world. Two of our greatest enemies are defeated in the cross. But he also defeated Satan in the cross. Uh, Colossians speaks of him parading before, so it's like a conquered, conquered parade. Uh, he, he basically pulled the teeth of the devil, but he'll still try to gum you to death. We are to resist him steadfast in the faith, 1 Peter 5, 9. And we are told to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you in James 4, 7. So we, re- we resist him in the spirit, by the spirit, and he cannot win. Do you want to boast? You can boast as much as you want, righteously in the cross of Christ. If you're a natural boaster, just switch your boasting over to, to the cross. This is where he redeemed us, where he paid for the sins of all. And he opens the way for us to be reconciled with God forevermore. First Corinthians one thirty one says that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And this, this word translated glories here is the same word translated boast. And he says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ. You can glory as much as you want in the work that he's done for you. And we should glory in it. We should boast about it very often. Spurgeon again said, what did he mean, however, by the cross? Of course, he cared nothing for the particular piece of wood to which those blessed hands and feet were nailed, for that was mere materialism and has perished out of mind. He means the glorious doctrine of justification, 
free justification through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Not the old rugged cross that does anything for you. It's the atonement of Christ Jesus dying upon that old rugged cross. In verse 15, then he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. The only salvation is a new creation. Jesus said you must be born again or born from above. No cutting of the flesh. Nothing of the flesh at all can give new birth and new life. Only the Spirit of God can bring about a new creation. John 6, verses 63 and 64, Jesus, uh, speaking to the Jewish folks around, said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So Jesus knew those who didn't believe in in the Spirit. It's by believing the things of the Spirit that there's profit. The flesh profits nothing. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Anything other than a new creation falls short of giving life. Life comes through faith in the cross of Jesus and only through his cross. Because Jesus died for our sins, that is, for forgiveness of our sins, the only forgiveness available, according to the scriptures, he was buried And he rose from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he was seen by many, alive by many witnesses, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Verse 16 of Galatians 6, he says, As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Blessings of peace and mercy upon the church and the Israel of God, that is, Jewish believers. Um, Henry Morris points out the Israel of God is not a synonym for the church, but refers rather to those Jewish Christians in the church who were truly resting in the grace and liberty of Christ, justified by faith in his finished work of redemption, not in circumcision or any other works of the law. Paul was contrasting them with the Judaizers, the professing Jewish Christians who were troubling the Gentile Christians with their insistence on circumcision and Jewish ritualism. The only reason Paul makes a distinction in this verse between uh, many who walk according to this rule that, you know, new creation. The reason he makes any distinction between them and the Israel of God is because of the false teachers in Judaism and and of Israel. So saying these people, the Israel of God are the ones who are justified by faith, just as the Gentiles are justified by faith. And then in verse 17, Paul says, From now on, let no one trouble me, perhaps by questioning his authority, which happened often. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. These are the marks of beatings, stonings, etc. Not the stigmata, although this is the Greek word that's in this verse. Uh, But the word has been hijacked. It's been misappropriated. Stigmata stigmata is just simply marks. That's what it means. Uh, Paul outlines his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27, really, but the pertinent parts concerning these um, stigmata. He says, In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods and once I was stoned. In Paul's day, stigmata was used in three ways. When a runaway, runaway slave was found and brought back to his master, he was branded on the forehead. This guy belongs to. Also, soldiers who belonged to famous companies had the names of their commanders tattooed on their foreheads as a sign of loyalty. Now, uh, the servants of the Lord God in the book of Revelation have his name placed on their foreheads, right? Then, too, the third thing, devotees of a pagan goddess had her name branded on their foreheads. And so Paul says, I have on my body the stigmata of the Lord Jesus, the marks. I mean, he had the scars from all the beatings that he had endured. And these were the marks. You know, this, this is the Lord's marks of ownership upon me. Stigmata, as publicized today, are occultic manifestations or fakery, and they're not signs of special spirituality. How do we know this? Because those who believe this teach doctrines contrary to the Scriptures. And finally, verse 18, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul began the letter with grace and peace. He ends the letter with peace and grace. And in between, the letter is all about grace, the grace that brings salvation, the grace that brings reconciliation, the grace that brings communion, the grace that brings glorification. Any other worthwhile things are brought to fruition by the grace of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Or so be it, as that word means.